memory blue to me was the gateway. I was looking at the next thing for a long time. Okay, when am I going to go out? When am I going to start getting interviews? This place is hiring. Why don't you send me here for an interview? So until you take a step back and realize the value that you guys bring and that company brings, you take your time and you get good better than anybody at what you guys are teaching and the stuff that you're bringing to the table, the better off you're going to be in the long run. Hi, everyone. Today, we're fortunate to have Tim Fabian on the podcast. Tim is currently living in upstate New York, crushes people in an adult hockey league. A couple of more interesting hockey things about Tim. He coached college hockey for four years, and he currently is a senior Mako product specialist at Stryker. He's going to tell us a little bit about this, about robot operating. Hi, I'm Mark Gagne. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. Tim, welcome. Thanks for having me. Mr. Fabian. What's going on? The original Mr. Fabulous. I forgot to mention, Tim was also a fashion icon during his days at Memory Blue. Yeah, I I brought out a uh, special shirt today for you. I know it's a podcast, but... Well, dude, I was like, those things are the will. And then you were like ahead. Then then it got popular. I was like, I started seeing that stuff everywhere. Yeah, I actually got turned on to it in college. Went to school at a small college in Syracuse. And Syracuse University has a lot of bougie students. And there was a store there that was carrying it. And I liked it and just grabbed onto it. I couldn't afford it then, but maybe Christmas time. All right. Well, Tim, it's great to have you. Cork and I are excited that you took some time off from your day to work, to work with us on the podcast or join us on the podcast. It's been a while. When I say it's been a while, you worked with us for almost two and a half years, dated back to January of 2011. So we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. But let's get the audience a little familiar with you. Tell us a little bit about Tim Fabian. We'll start with a little bit. We're going to go into detail. But where are you from? Where'd you grow up? That sort of thing. Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York, where I'm living right now. Went to high school here, went to college not far from here, about an hour and a half north. Studied political science. I was going to go to law school. That never ended up happening. My first job was with the state of New York, working in the Department of Motor Vehicles for a little while. Just the girl that I was dating at the time kind of hooked me up with a job. Her dad was high up in the state. I never really wanted to work there. It was just a, something to pay the bills. Let's go back. You're an athlete. Tell us about that. Yeah, I've been playing hockey my whole life. Started when I was three years old, played all the way through college. It was a pipe dream to play serious hockey as long as I could. Played at the junior college level, won a national championship my second year in JUCO, and then played club at Lemoyne for my junior and senior year. I love it. And then I started coaching after I graduated. Loved every second of it. I could be on the ice all day, every day if I could. What position? I was a forward, either wing or center. Still do that. Were you a finesse guy, or did you lead the league in hits? (laughs) I wasn't the most skilled player on the ice. What they call a mucker, I guess. Just working hard for the other guys, and I get a little nasty if I needed to. Tim, we'll get back to you and kind of your arrival in sales. But give me a quick little, how does like the sport of hockey, kind of the parallels or the lessons as relates to business? Could be sales, could be business in general. Yeah, I mean, hockey is not a sport that you just decide one day you want to start playing. It takes a lot of work to get there. I mean, you're skating on a quarter inch of ice on thin metal blades. you got to practice. 
you got to practice and hone your craft. And it's just like anything else translates into the business world. It's you're not good at sales on day one. You got to practice that. You got to get knocked down. You got to fall over and just keep getting back up and getting at it. And the persistence, I mean, I think they parallel pretty nicely. Yeah, Gagne, I've been trying to tell you for years to stop skating to where the puck is and start skating to where the puck is going to be. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That didn't make any sense to me because I didn't know much about hockey. (laughs) I can't insult hockey with Tim on the podcast. Or he's going to get a little nasty with me. (laughs) You're far enough away. (laughs) You can't reach me. Right now. I'll learn that lesson one day, Corker. I don't know when. You know, wake me when it happens. All right. Tim, so you went to Lemoyne, political science major. And what did you think you're going to do when you're coming out of school? So it sounds like sales wasn't a business, wasn't even in the near-term future. No, law school was the plan. I even went as far as taking the LSAT. I didn't do that great. And the preparation for it was murder. And I kind of got a little bit defeated. And I got a job and kind of started my next chapter. And things just started moving, and I didn't really ever entertain the law school thing again. So just like anybody, I wanted to make money. And sales was always that thing that I wanted to do. And I was always in that catch-22. You need sales experience to get a sales job. And was never really given an opportunity until I moved to Pittsburgh and got hooked up with Toshiba selling copiers. That's a way to learn. That is a grind. Knocking on doors all day, every day. I think that's the definition of mucking. Yeah, <laughs> you got that right. I'm better for it. I learned a lot. I mean, it was my first sales job. It was a, kind of a rude awakening. Just because you're in sales doesn't mean you're making a lot of money. I think my salary was like in the low 20s. And you got to make that work until you start selling some things. And it was a tough sled for a while. Describe for our listeners a little bit about what you were doing and the day-to-day, how you got the job. Yeah, so at the time, uh, girlfriend, now wife, was living in Pittsburgh and we were taking it to the next level and I decided to move down there without a job. So originally when I moved there, I got a job at J. Crew as a personal shopper. Very on brand. How did you take me personal shopping? Uh. <laughs> it was basically just another means to an end, just something. They painted a very beautiful picture of what the job could be and it wasn't really like that. I was still interviewing. I had a friend who actually was the best man at my wedding. He worked for Toshiba in Albany, New York at the time. And he hooked me up with a manager in Pittsburgh. I interviewed there and got the job. They don't really give you the full picture when they're interviewing you. But a day on the job was I had to make 30 cold calls to businesses in person a day. So like knocking on doors, just showing up unannounced? Yep, carrying my bag and handing out business cards and information. And the goal was to walk in, which it seems wild, walk into a business unannounced, no appointment, and get in front of the decision maker, which, I mean, 99.99% of the time, it's not going to happen unless it's just a small mom and pop that you're walking into, but those aren't really going to pay the bills anyway. So yeah, I did that for a little over a year. I had some success. Was this in downtown Pittsburgh or were you in the up in the suburbs or did you have your own territory? Yeah, I had a territory that was in the northern part of Pittsburgh. Our office was right near where the Steelers and the Pirates play. But everybody just scattered into the suburbs and in the surrounding areas. There's a lot of business, but, you know, as Pittsburgh, it's very blue collar. So at the time, 2009, 2010, people were still bouncing back from not so good times. And nobody really wanted to spend money on technology. So it was a tough go. But again, learning, grinding. 
and I get that sales experience on my resume, and it led me to you guys. Talk about that. Yeah, how'd that happen? So another friend of mine, Bobby Bryant. Oh, Robert. Yeah, one of the OGs at Memory Blue. Where art thou, Bobby? Yeah, hit me up. There you go. Hit me up, too, after you hit him up. So, yeah, he just hooked me up with you guys. He told me that he had worked there once upon a time. It was a good gig, springboard into bigger and better things. So we met, and the rest is history. How did you know Bobby? Bobby and I played college hockey together at Morrisville State in the middle of nowhere, upstate New York. Did you guys win the national championship together? We did. There you go. Good. I thought it, he may have left the team, and then that's what it freed you up to win the national title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's so wrong. Bobby was a, a very integral part of that national championship run. <laughs> he was good, but he kept the water cold or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Water bottles filled and fresh towels on the bench. Everybody needs a guy like that. Sharpen the blades. Did he play defense, I want to say? say? Yeah, he did. Nice. All right. Respectfully, shout out to Bobby Bryant. All right. So Bobby hooked you up? Yeah, he hooked me up, sent my resume in, and I think I met with Chris the first time around. And then I don't remember the whole process, but met with Chris. And then I think I met with the two of you and then started just after the first of the year. I actually lived in a hotel for a week or two. And then I slept on Bobby's floor for another couple weeks. And then my wife moved there and we got our apartment. All right. You're coming from selling copiers door to door in Pittsburgh. Then you're moved out of Washington Capital Territory, right? Working with us. What do you remember? I mean, coming from the copier world, it was all product training. It wasn't, here's how to sell it, or here is some ideas on getting in front of those decision makers. It was, here's everything you need to know about this copier and what it can do and how many pages it can print and then go sell it. And now we're flipping the script where it was at Memory Blue, it was learning everything that I needed to know to get in front of that decision maker and talk to him intelligently. And the product is secondary. The Sandler still use some of that stuff today, every day. And so I think I remember Chris using the analogy of drinking from a fire hose. It was great. I love it. I enjoyed it. I learned a ton. And I'd recommend it to anybody. Take us back. So what office were you in and who were you rolling with back then, Tim? When I first started, I was out in the bullpen. We were on the first floor in Tyson. And Corcoran was in the back. You two, you both were in the back. And I was, I think, one or two spots in front of you. I had, who was I around? Battle? Battle, wow, or Battle. Sneaker. Yeah. Trying to remember who else was there. So when I started, honestly, there was, what, five people there, maybe? It was a decade ago. Yeah, it was super tiny. This was coming right out of 08, 09, the Great Recession, when we were at a kind of a low point in terms yeah. of size. So you helped us rebuild. Yeah, I remember Eddie. Eddie yeah. McGuire. One day. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, we, I got hooked up with some interesting accounts. Steve Ely, Equity Corps. Whoa, holy moly. That was something else. For everybody that doesn't know what Equity Corps is, it was an executive search firm. And my job was to set appointments with CEOs that were looking to hire executives, a very small, finite number of people that I could speak to. Tim, I remember correctly, it was an alternative. Sorry. Yes, you're right. (laughs) I don't know why I couldn't just spew out that elevator pitch. It's like embedded in my brain somewhere. How bad is it that I remember it and you and Corbett were in the campaign? Maybe we're trying to forget it. That was a great campaign. Ely ran, you know what? Ely appreciated the value of process and, and integration and teamwork. One of the few clients had come by the office to meet, and you were calling some. Let's talk about that, actually. We talked about that a little bit in the prep. Corkin 
the type of people Tim was calling for that campaign? I think, if I remember correctly, Steve had his own sales force that was pre-populated with people that his target list and we would drill down on it every single week and we came up with this method of email voicemail multi-level campaign you call you leave a message immediately hit them with a with an email follow up a couple days later there's i don't know four or five levels to it sometimes it works sometimes i get an email back saying please leave me alone Uh, i'm not interested but i have your info which is i'll take that it is what it is but it was interesting steve's a good guy i mean i think he knew ganesh personally or if he didn't he led me to believe that he did so he had a, a lot of impact on me even now i haven't talked to him in 10 years but stuff i learned from him i still learn or still use So I'll say this about that campaign because I was involved with it. If I were you, I would have definitely wanted to be on that campaign for a couple of reasons. One is you're working directly with the business owner. Number two, he cared so much and was involved and was committed. And then number three, it was challenging because you had to go and get C-level people at a very specific organization's. And he provided the resources and he was a pioneer, in my opinion, in terms of building out those cadences and having a very strong process. And I remember when you started the campaign, it was you and there were some other folks involved. And I remember I went to Steve and I said, Steve, listen, you're working with us for X number of hours. I think to give us the highest level of success, let's put Tim on it full time. Let's put all our chips behind him. And he's like, okay. And during that time, he had also was working with another provider. And like a week or two later, he's like, hey, Chris, I'm taking a page out of your book. I was like, oh, he's like, yeah, I'm not working with that other provider. I'm just working with you guys. And so like we were very much aligned and all in it together. And so operating at that level when everyone's all in. Yeah. And the successes that I did have, he was very generous in he showed how appreciative he was. For sure. You know, he used to come in with a handful of cash and uh, <laughs> take us out to dinner and the steaks and the wine. And it was hard work, but it was nice. The wins were big. And also, you knew you were making a difference. What was it like going from primarily door to now I'm working like a phone call, voicemail, email game? You're working from the inside out. Yeah, the door-to-door game, you have some flexibility with what you do. I can't imagine that there's a lot of people from Toshiba listening right now, but if I was out doing cold calls on a Friday afternoon and it was a nice day, it was 1, 2 o'clock, I might just scoot home. It's good and bad. It's good because you can do that and nobody's going to say anything, but it's bad because you're basically kind of just throwing the towel in and saying, I'll get them next week. And then going from a 7.30 to 5.30 cold call and hammering the phones all day, it was an adjustment, but you get used to it. And you're talking to people on the phone. It's less impactful if they're not interested. Where one-on-one, face-to-face, somebody says no and turns their back on you. Thanks. Yeah, okay, I got it. You and Ely full-time for a duration of your equity core of your tenure as an SDR? I think at one point it went to half time. Okay. So I think 20 hours a week. I had a couple other accounts that I worked on. Cycle 30. We flew out to Seattle to kick off the account. Me and Tad and Mike Jones. Mike Jones! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was an experience. I mean, they set us up in corporate housing and wined and dined us. And it was nice. I had never been out there, so I I took advantage. And there was another one. I can't think of the name of it right now. It was Cybersecurity NetWitness. NetWitness. They ended up being acquired by RSA. Yeah, I think that happened while I was there, but we Mm -hmm. weren't working with them. And then the NetWitness CEO is now the CEO of Tenable. 
So you had some pretty impactful uh, clients in terms of that's pretty cool. And then when you were working with us, what did you get good at? What was the Tim Fabian signature move? Was it the phone? Was it the email? Was it something else when you're on the phone? Like So I like to think that I was pretty good on the phone, especially with the CEOs. I mean, you gotta be on your game when you're talking to a CEO of a multi million dollar company. And I don't know. I used to have some recordings of conversations that I'd have with some of these CEOs. And I think I was pretty good. This isn't you yourself telling you it. Steve, the client, was telling you that too. Yeah, I mean, he would definitely pump my tires when he heard something good. And every Monday, we would evaluate however many calls. And, and yep. I'd get not ripped to shreds, but it was scrutinized in a good way. If Corker was going to go to bat with you or for you together on a campaign full time, it's not because we thought you were good. Like, it's because this guy's good. <laughs> we're going to yeah. put him on this campaign full time. Because once you do that, once you tell a client, we're going all in, Mr. Fabian, 40 hours a week, full time, like, that's a sign of confidence. Yeah. Looking back on it now, I mean, at the time, it was tough. But like you said, you're not going to get recommended for something like that if you didn't have the confidence in me to, to do it. But it was when you hear your counterparts ringing that bell over and over again, and you're maybe ringing it once a week. It's tough. <laughs> Every Monday, you got new leads to report. No, I don't. <laughs> you talk about breaking down the calls. What was that like? I pull, I don't remember the number, but let's call it three three calls from the previous week and I'd bring them and and we'd listen to them a little bit at a time and you'd stop and say, see what you did here. That was good, but maybe next time try doing this. And it was a learning session for me. Every week I was a sponge, just taking information from Corcoran and from Steve and, and then applying it to what I was doing that following week and then just building in my skill set. Not everybody got that. I was fortunate. I definitely remember being like, man, that client comes and be like, why is this client coming every week? Then I was like, well, that's want that. That's how you get better. It's like, we'll go back to the hockey thing. You got to practice the skating to be good skater and to be good on the ice. I could do some hockey stock too. And you were doing those same exact things every Monday with Ely, who's tenured, know what he was doing, and with Corcoran. Like, a lot of other campaigns would, would take the time and energy for that. So it's certainly painful, but that's what we tell people who listen to the podcast, people who work here, is you need to listen to yourself on the phones and break yourself down and get a little naked with your self assessment. Or you're not going to ever get any better. Yeah, 100%. That is the best way to learn. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You self-scrutinize and you evaluate and find what you can do better. What else do you remember from being there? Who else did you work with back in the day? So further on in my tenure, we moved up to the front office and it was myself, Nimit. Nimit so, uh, It's a pretty big baller there now, if I'm not mistaken. And the Honey Badger, Andrew Bass. Honey Badger! Well, that was a good time up there, I'll tell you that. I mean, Andrew was one of the, lived up to his nickname, the Honey Badger. He was a unique individual on the phone, but he and I still stay in touch, actually. We had dinner and a couple drinks on vacation last year. His fiance lives in Cape Cod, and we go there every year, and his wife, sorry. And he hit me up on social media, and we got together. So describe, because you became ingrained in it, but describe to the listeners a little bit about the culture. The culture in that lodge? In the lodge and then also within the company at the time. Yeah. So in that front office, we dubbed it the lodge and we called it that because the honey badger brought in a, I, I don't know, however many point buck <laughs> and, and hung it on the wall. And then it grew to, I think he had an alligator head at some point, And there's probably some other taxidermy animal in there. And we had a good time. We feed off of each other and give each other tips. And every 
Friday afternoon, we'd enjoy a couple adult beverages uh, after hours and hang out. We had great room to be in. The office was small at that time overall, but I think we had a great culture there. I mean, everybody seemed to get along well. We were able to get together as a unit. I don't remember if we did it every week or every month or whatever and do those the book things. And do you still do that? I don't want to call it a book report, but that's basically what it was. The training has evolved significantly. That happens. We could have a hold on the podcast and what the training is like now. But yes, those sorts of things happen. I'm in one now, like the sales team at Memory Blues Reading, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. A chapter a week meeting and you review and talk about it. No presentations on them, but yes, that's still part of the culture. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, those presentations that we did, a new hire presentation, and then I don't know however many presentations we did in front of the company, that makes you a better person. Not just salesperson, mm-hmm. but person in general. You got in at a good time because you were doing the presentations and the book clubs and call reviews with the client. You got the full experience. Taking an individual's raw potential and turning them into a thriving sales professional takes the right training. That's where Memory Blue Academy comes in. Memory Blue Academy teaches participants the fundamentals of sales development and all aspects of a lead generation role regardless of the level of professional experience or background. The course kicks off with a two-day intensive boot camp session, followed by a six-week ongoing educational program. This is the program every single Memory Blue SDR undergoes at the onset of their tenure. The curriculum covers a wide range of topics, including list building, objection handling, effective sales emails, and more. Participants will be shown how to successfully execute a diverse set of sales activities in a very short time, experiencing tangible and lasting skill growth. To learn more and sign up for a seat in an upcoming session, head to memoryblue.com slash academy. So Fabian, who besides yourself was the best SDR there? Oh man, that's a loaded question. I mean, everybody had their strengths. I think Tom Gasming separated himself from just about everybody else. He was a hustler. Probably still is. Tell me more. He came in, he came in his first day, cigarettes smoking, Jeep driving. I don't know where he was from, but, you know, just, I was like, man, this guy, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting, but man, he hit the ground running. And I think him and I, we might've worked on, oh yeah, we did uh, search together. And because we moved over to that other office in over by, what's that called? The Lost Dog. Yeah. Tech Center or Tech Corner. Yeah. Me, him, right, so- and uh, Devlin. Oh, Nicole. Mickey, yeah. Mickey D. Yeah. Mickey D. Holy crap. All right. All right. Yeah. So Tommy's pretty good. Tommy still here. I was yeah. Tommy's delivery manager. And I remember it sweating a little when he started. And then we were talking about Mr. Bot on his first day. Right. Yeah. I mean, nobody comes in knowing the job. So Nimit, I think this is his first job out of college. He was uh, a very timid guy coming in. MG and I were talking about this before we started recording. He was like, you remember the scene in Bambi where he walked out on the ice and he went, <laughs> he was like, one of those. Nothing against Nimit. I love Nimit. Uh, again, everybody found their way. And obviously he's still there kicking ass for you guys and doing big things. I keep track of everybody. Yeah, he's doing great things. And he told me to say hello when I forced you to say that he was like Bambi walking on ice. So that's not, I mean, it's all that So you're doing your thing, working with us. And one of the things that we do now that I don't know if you could have done it back then, but we have a tops trip twice a year and think of it as a president's yeah. club. And I can say for certain that Chris and I would have tremendously enjoyed going on a trip like that with guys like you 
back in the day, 10, 11 years ago. One of my regrets, and there's not a lot of them, is that we didn't do that back then because we would have had a spectacular time together. Yeah, that would have been a good time. It is what it is. Everybody evolves, and I do get jealous when I see those pictures on Instagram of your guys now going to yeah. Dominican Republic or wherever you guys have gone. Yeah, but yeah, that would have been fun. We could still do it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure your wife would love that. So, Tim, like, get the old crew find- back together. There you go. Well, Tommy's still here. Nimmy's still here. He's got to get Honey Badger. I don't know if I can handle Honey Badger and a couple other people. I'll get. I'll take Nikki D. I'll take Mike Jones. I'll take all those people. Yeah. So, Tim, you enjoyed us enough, and we were fortunate enough, and we liked you. And you did a good job. You stuck around for us a little longer, which I think is a compliment to us, and we're grateful for that, and certainly a compliment to you because we, they're not everybody we want to stick around. So talk a little bit about that, and let's get into what you did next. Yeah, so I touched on it a little bit already. I worked with Tommy on, I think we called it search at the time. I was looking, or we were working on getting new clients for Memory Blue. It was a nice transition. My goal, I think, while I was there, and eventually I moved back to New York and worked remotely, but I wanted to climb the ladder as high as I could and get to the delivery manager position, which I think got developed as I was getting longer in my tenure there. But I think I still worked with Ely for a while while I was doing the new client search, and it was a challenge, but it was very much the same as what I was doing for Equity Core. You're targeting the same people and different product, but talking to the same people. And then eventually I transitioned when I moved back to New York to a new hire search. So I was recruiting, me and Tiana. And Tiana uh, Bell. I think I did that for, I don't know, six, seven months. I don't think it was going to be a long-term thing. I think everybody knew that, but it was the same thing selling a different product, but it's still high level stuff. And that part was fun because I could kind of talk to college kids and people that are transitioning in their career or looking to get into tech sales or whatever it is. And I could sell memory blue. I mean, I was a great case for that. And I could speak to my own experience. And I tell anybody the same thing I tell them now, this is a great springboard for whatever you want to do in your life. So talk about a little bit about heading back to Binghamton in D.C. and you and your wife, I guess you didn't love the city and you wanted to head back to your roots. Yeah, it's not that we didn't love it there because it's a great place to live, but we wanted to start a family and it wasn't at the time wasn't sustainable. And I had family back here. My mom wasn't in the greatest health. So we made the decision to move back to New York. And if it were up to my wife, we'd still be there. She loved it. But that's another conversation. So after moving back, my mom, who was doing travel at the time, so she did corporate travel, her and my uncle owned a travel agency. And she worked with a company that it was a HVAC distributor. So they sold heating, cooling, refrigeration equipment to dealerships and the guys that come to your house and fix your heat and your air conditioning and all the way up to large universities and hospitals and things like that. And so I got hooked up with them. They had an outside sales position open and I decided to make the jump. It was completely different than what I was used to. Totally different sales. It was almost like a customer service type job where they call me, say, this is what I need rather than me calling them and say, here's what I have. There were instances where I would do that or try and get new customers, but it was different. I'd be out pounding pavement, but it was more visiting existing customers, keeping them happy, taking them to lunch, giving them the literature on latest and greatest products. It was good. It was okay money for Binghamton, New York. And it kept me happy for a little while, but then I slowly realized 
just like anything else that I wanted to climb. I didn't want to be a salesperson forever. I wanted to get up into management or do bigger and better things. And it wasn't possible. It was a family owned company. Everybody at the top was family. And I always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to get into medical device and always had my eye on LinkedIn and on Indeed and just to see what was out there. I live in a small city in upstate New York, so there really aren't a lot of opportunities. And when they come up, everybody wants them. And I saw this job that I have now posted and I threw my resume out there. I got an interview with the hiring manager and things went well. I got down to the final two and the other person got hired. I was bummed, but I'm not defeated. Keep plugging along. And six months later, I saw the job reposted. So I reached out to the the manager and he told me I should have hired you six months ago. The guy was a bonehead. And here I am four years later. Keep mucking. Never take no. That's great. Because there's a lot of people who, so one, there are people that would fold when they heard no and given up completely. And then there's a second category of people, I hope I don't fall into this case, but maybe I would, who'd be so pissed off that they would take it personally and they would close the door on the opportunity altogether. And you had the maturity to do neither, which is, yeah, I mean, served you well. I, I was pissed in the beginning <laughs> because I thought for sure I was going to get hired. And whatever the reason was, I hear things now that was because of an existing relationship or whatever, but it doesn't matter. I'm here now, but it, yeah, I was pissed, but I used it as motivation too. It's great. Tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing for Striker. Yeah, this job that I have is not a sales job. So at a high level, I operate a robot that helps surgeons do knee and hip replacements. So before this technology existed, and there's still surgeons that do this, they basically take a jig when you get your knee replaced, they put a jig on the top of it and there's pre-selected cuts. that you know, they, So they cut your bone to fit an, an implant on it, the replacement. And there's always an element of, yeah, I think that's okay. I think it works well. This patient's knee is in much better shape than they were when they rolled in the OR and off they go. So this technology was developed by a company in Florida that Stryker purchased 10 years ago, something like that, that dials in and uses all sorts of technology to make this knee replacement perfect. It's down to the millimeter of accuracy. And you compare it to driving a Porsche versus driving a Dodge Neon. Either one of them will get you to where you you need to be, but one is much better. Hips, the same thing. It's a technology and it's the entire medical field and orthopedics is all going in that direction. Stryker just happens to be first in line and everybody's playing catch up. And so what exactly are you doing in terms of operating a robot? So interoperatively, I'm making adjustments. We, so we come in with a plan, right? So the patient gets a CT scan and we build a 3D model of their joint and then interoperatively we make some adjustments to, to balance the knee because your knee is, it's got ligaments and each ligament is tensioned differently. And what you want is straight up and down line so that all of your weight is distributed evenly throughout your joints. It's less pain, it's less wear. So we assess the ligaments interoperatively. I make changes and then wheel the robot in. The doctor grabs a hold of it and does what he needs to do. And so this robot narrows in and does not allow the surgeon to go up, down, left, right with the saw. So the saw is attached to the end of a robotic arm and it allows the surgeon to make these cuts perfectly without going outside. You don't want to cut any ligaments or tendons or anything like that. So it's a little different than selling air conditioners. So while this is happening, while the surgeon is working with the robot, are you in the operating room? Yep. Do you just have a ringside seat to the whole thing or what are you doing? Are you just watching or chirping in the surgeon's ear or what's going on? 
Yeah, so a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, I like to be a fly on the wall until I'm not. Surgeons are big personalities, so you got to develop that relationship before you start chirping at them. And they need to trust me. I went through a pretty intense training program, but they went to medical school. So they don't want some guy coming in telling them how to do their job. It's more of a suggestion type of situation. The work that I've done in the past has prepared me for dealing with guys like this. I bet. So I have great relationships with all the doctors I work with because I know how to read a room. I know how to talk to these guys. I know how to develop relationships. Everything that I've done up to this point has led me here. That's great. And so how often are you in the operating room? Three, four days a week. Some days are busier than others. Like Mondays are always my busiest day, anywhere from eight to 12 hours in the OR. And then other days, not so busy. And I work from home too. There's some preparation work that I do as well. How long does one of these surgeries take? It depends on the doctor. More experienced guys, it'll be for a knee half hour, 45 minutes for a hip, anywhere from 25 to 45. In the less experienced or guys that aren't as high volume, they could take an hour or plus. They're a little bit more deliberate with what they do, but it's so much fun. It really is. And Stryker is a great company. They treat us well. We actually, in the beginning of our national sales meeting, we have every year and there's a keynote speaker every year. So they did a virtual keynote this morning at Magic Johnson. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. He spoke for an hour. It's just stuff we do. They, they sent me to Switzerland a couple of years ago to do some cases there. And I definitely made the best of my time there. That's awesome. Caught a couple it's- hockey games while I was there. It's kind of like going to a European soccer game. Not really. Those are much more fun. Oh, yeah. I forgot you're a soccer guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey. So you mentioned it. Let's dig into that a little because we've got all sorts of people in the podcast. We're doing one with someone who's in Salesforce.com as a consulting person now. Not actually with Salesforce, but a Salesforce.com partner. Yeah. People who take different paths. But you mentioned it earlier and you referred to it a couple of times, but I want to maybe have you drill down on that. Like you said, you still use the Sandler stuff every day. And then the things that you've done before have kind of prepared you for this role. Like just go into that a little. Like share with us what do you mean when you say you use the Sandler stuff every day and there's the other things that help you with the gig. It's just habit now. When I make a phone call to whether it's a coworker or office manager at a surgeon's office or what, I always start the call with, did I catch you at a bad time? Or is this a good time? I just do it. It's a reflex. I don't even think about it. And working with Steve and Chris so closely, talking to these high-level people, there's just a certain way that you have to talk to them. You get to their level, and I don't know, I guess it's kind of hard to put words yeah. to it, but it's like ingrained in me. And there's a respect level that comes with these conversations. And I work with guys, I work with sales reps that call doctors by their first name, for example. I never do that, ever, mm-hmm. unless they tell me to, never. I think that there's guys that value that and some guys don't care, but I was raised in a way to respect those guys and talking to CEOs for however long I did it, it kind of developed that in me, that respect and that certain way to talk to people. That presence, that command. Yeah, it can't be timid either. Like I said before, if you're talking to these heavy hitters, they're going to blow you right over. If you're not confident, if you don't have a presence about you and In the OR, when you're wheeling around an 800-pound robot that's cutting people's bones, you have to have a presence about you that people respect. Tim, as you've gone through your journey, what's been more important, do you think? The type of manager you have or the type of company you work for? Like, Is it better to work for a great company and a not great manager? Is the manager more important than the company? Is it a little bit of both? Yeah, I've had both. My manager right now, 
he was my mentor when I got hired. Him and I got real tight and we worked together forever. And we worked closely when I first started. I was pretty much his shadow for six months. And we developed a friendship. And now he's my boss, but we still maintain that. Obviously, I have that respect for him, even though he's like 10 or 12 years younger than I am. (laughs) He is my boss. And he is also very hands-off and lets me do my thing. He knows that when I reach out to him, I need something. Otherwise, it's do your thing. Let me know if you need anything. And the other side of that, I've had managers that need to know where I am at every moment of every day, what I'm doing, who I'm talking to. That, to me, is not really how I like to roll. I like to have that autonomy. I like to be able to do my own thing and just trust me that I'm doing my job. And the company is, to me, it's made a huge difference. I mean, I went from a small family-owned mom-and-pop HVAC distributor to one of the biggest companies in the world global multi-billion dollar company and it's totally different. I get treated incredibly well, afforded a lot of opportunities that I would have never had. I travel before all the pandemic stuff. I was going to Vegas and Florida and Texas as much as I wanted to. I'm involved in the medical education department as well. I help them with certifying new surgeons that their hospitals buy the robots. So they both have their advantages, but I wouldn't trade what I'm doing right now for anything in this company or anything. hope that answers your question. I got a question for you. So I'd like to know, like, just for you to compare the different sales roles that you had when you were selling copiers door to door, you were working with us on an inside sales capacity, trying to connect and secure face-to-face meetings with C-level executives to selling HVAC equipment. What role was the hardest? Oh, good question. I think that what I did at Memory Blue was the hardest. I think I do. Yeah, because most of the sales that I had when I was selling HVAC stuff, it was going to happen anyways. I was just there. I was the guy to take the order, so to speak. It was more order taking than it was anything else. It's a very loyal business. So flipping people from one vendor to another, it was challenging. And I really didn't get involved in that a lot. I mean, memory blue, every day was a grind. Every day was hammer the phone and hope to God you get somebody on the phone. Copier sales was a different animal altogether. I mean, it was knocking on doors, similar, but not the same. It's my first sales job. It was hard at the time. But if I knew now, or if I knew then what I knew now, I think things would have been different. One of the things I think that our listeners should understand is that when you were calling for Steve, these C-level executives and CEOs, You had to book face-to-face meetings. It wasn't phone calls. You had to book face-to-face meetings, which that's a much bigger ask for anyone, especially a CEO, to go and carve out an hour to sit down with somebody. Yeah, that was a big time. I mean, I still remember. I don't know if you remember this or not, Chris, but the first meeting that I set for Steve, he made me (laughs) go with him because it was a guy that he knew was just blowing smoke. It was a guy that he had dealt with in the past. His name is irrelevant at this point. So we go to his office. And Steve told me going into it, and he picked me up in his Land Rover. We rode over, and he said, you're going to be sorry that you came on this appointment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we go in. I'm not kidding you. This guy had more cologne on than I have ever been around in my life. It was unbelievable. (laughs) Sure enough, he wasn't really looking for help finding an executive. He was just a meeting taker guy. Like he just wanted to talk to somebody and Steve knew it going in, but you know, gave me the benefit of the doubt. And I think I got lunch out of it. So (laughs) what a memory. 
So Fabian, you mentioned you keep track of folks who you used to work with. Yeah. What do you see some moves that people make? Because we've got these people work for us now. And everybody is really anxious and excited about what they're going to do next. What they're going to do, what they're going to do next. What they're going to do next. Yeah. And we're like, listen, you need to get good at this job. Get good at all these certain things. Slow your roll. We screen folks for certain character beliefs and dispositions and traits. Yeah. And one of them is we find people who are impatient, but the same thing too, you're asking people to be patient. So sometimes people get out ahead of themselves a little bit. And what have you noticed from some of your colleagues or just the advice might you have for the younger version of yourself and others as how they should approach like moving through their career? I was guilty of the exact same thing. Memory blue to me was the gateway. I was looking at the next thing for a long time. Okay, when am I going to go out? When am I going to start getting interviews? This place is hiring. Why don't you send me here for an interview? So until you take a step back and realize the value that you guys bring and that company brings, you take your time and you get good better than anybody at what you guys are teaching and the stuff that you're bringing to the table, the better off you're going to be in the long run. For me personally, like I said, I was a victim of that. And until I realized how fortunate I was and how the opportunities that I had are few and far between calling dealing with these CEOs and getting that one-on-one attention from Chris and from Steve and it's valuable take your time don't jump on the first opportunity that gets put in front of you if it's not right then don't do it if you don't get that feeling it's just because it's a job with a tech company whatever commission sales doesn't mean it's the best move all right so let's close out with two rapid fire questions yeah two of your favorite subjects one is clothing What's your favorite brand? Favorite brand. Right now, I'm wearing a lot of Lululemon, believe it or not. <laughs> okay. As you move into CrossFit, huh? you're rocking the Lulu. Yeah. I mean, they got great casual clothes. I wear Lulu pants to work every day. Lulu shorts when I work out. Yeah. It's comfortable. Canadian company, too. Yeah. I know. I'm sorry. There you go. The Great White North. All right. Next question. Favorite beer? Boy, can I just narrow it down to one brewery? Yeah, sure. Treehouse. Okay. Are they in Vermont or Massachusetts? Massachusetts. Tell me and the listeners about Treehouse because it's one of the best in the country. Yeah. Their beers are head and shoulders above the rest of the country, the world even. I think they're one of the pioneers of the New England style IPA. And every year when we go to the Cape, it's a stop along the way and on the way back. And you can't get it anywhere but at the brewery, so I spend more money than I should at the brewery. But yeah, their beers, they're just knockout good. And so how much beer do you haul in on the way back from the beach? Uh, a couple cases. A year supply? No, because their beer, well, it doesn't last a year. It doesn't matter how much I buy. But the shelf life is, is only a month or two. I see. Excellent. Good. Very good. Mr. Fabian, this was awesome. I love hearing your wisdom and catching up with you. And we appreciate all of what you shared with both Mark and me and our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great to catch up and love what you guys are doing. It's unbelievable the growth that you guys have had in the last decade. And it's so much fun to watch. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. And we love hearing that you're operating 800-pound robots in the OR. If I ever need any sort of surgery, I'm calling you. You're going to be the guy with the freaking rattle care with the surgeries. I want Tim telling them, I want you operating the robot. Apologies for the rest of your all's lives to your wife, who has to endure your Sandler-isms the entire time. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's gotten used to it. <laughs> I'm sure. Awesome. All right, Mr. Fabian, thanks a bunch. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Peace out. The pain of finding and hiring strong sales professionals is a critical challenge that is widespread and getting worse. 
The Memory Blue Direct Hire Service specializes in filling sales development roles within the high-tech space. And with a one-year performance guarantee and 0% interest financing, you can feel secure in your selection process when you use Memory Blue Direct Hire. As a company, we hire close to 300 SDRs annually across our five office locations. That's nearly an SDR per day all year long. Finding, hiring, and developing sales talent is the core strength of our business. Now we're letting the public tap into the resources of our world-class talent team, specifically trained to find high potential SDRs in order to close this gap. For more information on this service, check out memoryblue.com direct. for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beep.